Our Old Testament scripture reading comes from the book of Job, and we're going to be reading responsively Job chapter 19, verses 23 through 29. And then our New Testament gospel reading comes from John chapter 11, verses 17 through 37. So hear the word of the Lord. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end He will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes. I am not as a stranger. How my heart yearns within me. If you say, how we will hound him, since the root of the trouble lies in him. You should fear the sword yourselves. For the wrath will bring punishment by the sword, and then you will know that there is judgment. And then from John chapter 11, verses 17 through 37. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, My brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. 
But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now as we come to our passage this morning in John 11 and 12, I really wanted to do this, and I'm not going to do it, but I wanted to say, all right, how many of you read this week, John 11 and 12? I recommended that, remember, last week. I said, just read it every day. And uh, several of you have said this morning, in fact, have asked me questions about chapters 11 and 12, and it's, it's had some impact on at least a few people. And so we're here for another week. We'll still be in this chapter next week. And I will simply say this, that when I'm talking to an unbeliever, a friend of mine that's not a believer, and they don't believe the New Testament, they don't believe the gospel, I ask them specifically about the miracles of Jesus. I say, what do you do with the miracles of Jesus? And according to their answer, I will speak to the certainty of those miracles. And if I want to get more specific, I will go to the 11th and 12th chapter of John, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And the unbelievers in there could not deny that miracle, could not deny it. And it's a real problem for the world. It's a real problem if you're not a Christian and you don't believe the gospel. You don't believe it actually happened. You need to read John 11 and 12. These are two of the most powerful chapters in Scripture, all of Scripture. They're apologetic. They're a great polemic for the deity of Jesus Christ, for the truth of the gospel. And that's why we're taking time, two or three Sundays, four Sundays, to work through these passages. So I would encourage you again this week to read them. Well, another reason is that sometimes I'm asked by folks, well, where is the United States in prophecy? Where are we? If, if, when you turn through Scripture, so somewhere in Scripture and I can read about what's happening to us. And I laugh. And I said, not only that, you can turn through Scripture and read about your life, what the Bible says about you personally in the 21st century. And that sparked some interest. And this morning, we're going to see that Jesus talks to us personally about our deaths, your death, my death, our deaths. It's a great word. But before we come to it, let's bow before the Father and ask him to teach us. Let's pray together. Our Father, first we bow before you as your priest, your congregation of priests at Christ's Covenant Church. We've been out in the world this week, Father, striving to be salt and light to the world around us, salt and light for Jesus. We've tried to speak to the world through our words and through our actions. 
I'm trying to speak to the world about your son, about our Savior, about the gospel. Sometimes we have been dim lights and stale salt. We pray, Father, that we ask that you would help us to be better prophets, better speakers of your word, better livers of your word. But now, Father, we've come in from the world and we've gathered before your throne and you've told us to come as your priests, bringing the world around us, our children, our marriages, our wives, our husbands, our neighbors. And so especially this morning, Father, we bring those for whom we're concerned with physical ailments, with sickness, with hurts, with pains. Our Father, we pray this morning again for David Mattingly. We thank you for how you have blessed him and how you have brought some healing to his body. We pray, our Father, that you'll continue to bless him, continue to heal until this is complete. We pray that you would show the doctors exactly what's wrong and the remedy. Bless Joan Schaefer, Father. We pray that the doctors would give her uh, a solution uh, to the illness and her physical needs. Thank you for what you're doing and what you've done over this last year with Phil Halley, and we thank you for giving Sally the strength as she cares for him and have the great improvements that we've seen in Phil, Father. We pray that would continue. We thank you for the good news about Trip Thompson this week. Oh, Father, thank you. We pray that you will continue to bring healing to him. We pray that the doctors will continue uh, to seek the solution for this tumor. But thank you for the good news this week. We pray for Molly Francis, Turnt Roberts, Father. We pray that you would bless Molly and bring healing to her. Take away this cancer. We pray for Ted and Joyce Johnson. Father, teach them what, what we want you to teach us, to look ahead with anticipation for what you have prepared. Bless them and cause them to be an encouragement to each other. Thus, Sylvia Clarendon. Continue to bring comfort, Father, to the Warren Canale family. We pray for our marriages. We pray for our children, our grandchildren. We pray that you would strengthen our homes. Oh, Father, save our children. Save our grandchildren. Raise up from the children of this church, Father. Raise up ministers. Raise up men and women standing for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now as we open your word, Father John Sartell cannot teach us that it will make any difference in our lives. No man that stands behind that desk is able to do that. And so, as always, we cast ourselves upon your grace, Father. And we ask you to teach us. We pray that we would hear your voice in the next few minutes in this room. Change us, Father. Maybe some of us for the first time. We're your children just asking you to tell us the story. Tell us the story in greater depth. 
Give us greater understanding. Oh, Father, when we leave here in a few minutes, may we know that you have spoken in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So, what did Jesus say about your death and my death? Well, what if you had been the one, personally, sending the message to Jesus that your brother, who happened to be a dear, close friend of Jesus, was seriously ill? What if you had done that? What would you say to Jesus when he arrived four days too late? What would you say? What would you say if you knew that he had purposely delayed his coming? That happened to a family that Jesus dearly loved. You know the story we looked at the beginning of John's account last week. Martha probably discovered later from one of the disciples that Jesus had been waiting until after Lazarus died to arrive. That was on purpose. If you had been Martha, you might have said what she said. We read it this morning. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Mary, her sister, repeated the same thing. Now, they might have been saying that in an accusatory way. Where have you been? Couldn't you have gotten here sooner? But she probably did not know that Jesus had intentionally delayed his arrival. She didn't know that at the time. Actually, what she said could have been a confession of faith. It could have been that she was saying, you're the Messiah. I know you would have healed him like you've healed so many others if you had been here. That's a confession of faith, not accusatory. And she went on to add a sentence that does indeed demonstrate her faith. Look at it, verse 22. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I know that even now you're able to do something about this, Jesus. Well, we don't know whether it was a confession of faith or she was accusing Jesus. We were not there to hear the inflection of her voice. We don't know the tone in which those words were spoken. We do know how Jesus responded. He responded with words of comfort, not rebuke. Look at verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, we want to stop there for a moment. Her response to him is very significant to us today. Look at it, verse 24. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. 
She believed in a resurrection at the end of time. Why is that so important to us? Modern liberals, inside and outside the church, teaching biblical history, are apt to say that the resurrection was not taught in the Old Testament. That's one of the first things I heard from liberal scholars when I was in seminary. I was sitting in a class in seminary. It was my first year. The class was in Old Testament history. We were studying the books of the Old Testament. An internationally known professor had spent an entire hour proving that believers living in the Old Testament period did not believe in the resurrection and were not taught about the resurrection from the Old Testament. The chalkboard was filled with notes that he had written supporting his position. Near the end of the hour, the class was almost over, and a very nerdy-looking friend of mine raised his hand to ask a question. Now this, he was very meek. He was not the type to go head to head with a professor of such stature, but he was just curious. And he said, Professor, what about the passage in Job chapter 19, verses 25 and 27? We read it this morning in our responsive reading. It's on your scripture sheet. And my friend read that passage, for I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, the last day, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, after I've died, yet in my flesh, not just as a soul, yet in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not as a stranger. Right there, we see the Old Testament teaching the resurrection. It was interesting. The professor heard the question. He looked at the class. He looked at his notes on the board, and he began to erase all of his notes. And he picked up his books and walked out. He didn't have an answer, and there's still not one today. You see, Martha did not have the New Testament. She only had the Old Testament. And she believed in the resurrection. Where did she learn it? From the Old Testament. Let's look at one more passage. In Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, if you have your Bibles, if not, it's on your scripture sheet. God is speaking to Daniel. It's near the end of Daniel's book. And And he's closing up. He's revealed all these visions to Daniel. And he said, all right, we're done. And he tells Daniel to go his way. Look at these verses. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust, in other words, have died, shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. 
And then go down to verse 13. But go your way, Daniel, till the end, and you shall rest. In other words, you shall die. And shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Again, what's he teaching? There's going to be a physical resurrection. We could quote other passages, but the point has been made. Martha believed in the resurrection. Strangely, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. Where did they learn it? They learned it from the Old Testament. How does Martha answer Jesus? I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, in our study of John, we have heard Jesus say, make claims. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. These are all in the gospel of John. I'm the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. In recent weeks, we've seen all of these. He was claiming to be the Messiah. But now we hear him make, here in this, the middle of this drama, he makes the most amazing claim of them all. I am the resurrection and the life. Now, I want you to notice something. Martha had said in verse 22, but even now, even though you weren't here to heal him when he said, even now, God will give you whatever you ask of him. Let me ask you a question. When you see Jesus making the blind person see, when you see Jesus raising the paralyzed man and saying, walk, when you see him stop the storm, did he pray? Did he pray then? No. Now he prayed all through the Gospels. We see Jesus praying. But he didn't need to pray. He was deity. He was the son of God. He only had to command, and that's what he did. Martha has said, you know, you can pray, and whatever you ask of God, he'll give you. So how does Jesus respond to her? This is, un, this is incredible. I hope you understood that. This week, Jesus looks at her and says, Martha, I am the resurrection. I don't ask for a resurrection. I command it. I am the resurrection. And I want you to notice something else. Look at verses 25 and 26. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What in the world does that mean? Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Well, let's break that down for just a minute. Whoever, that's what he says, whoever. He's not just speaking of Lazarus here. This is not just one off. He says, whoever believes in me. Do you believe in Jesus this morning? 
Is your faith anchored in Jesus? Do you love him more than father and mother, more than son or daughter, more than anything else in your life? Do you seek to love him? Is that where your faith is? Then right at this point, Jesus is speaking about you. He says, whoever believes in me, this is true. He's speaking about your life and your death. He's speaking about my life and my death. So what did Jesus mean when he said, I, Martha, you need to know this, I am the resurrection and the life. What did he mean? There are three ways that we can look in our lives and see Jesus as the resurrection. You can see it in your life. I can see it in my life. First, he resurrects us. We see that he's the resurrection in that he resurrects us from the spiritual, from a spiritual deadness to a life, to a new life in God. Now, he's mentioned this before in John 5, 25. And if you go back this afternoon, you can circle that passage. It's on your scripture sheet. Go back to it this afternoon in, on our website, to the message preached in. And we've talked about this. John 5, 25 says, I'll tell you the truth. Jesus is speaking now. I love this. Jesus is speaking. He says, I'll tell you the truth. A time is coming and now has come. In other words, it was happening right then when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He's not speaking about a future at the second coming when people will hear his voice and rise. He's speaking about what was happening right then, where he was. Men and women, boys and girls, are hearing my voice and their dead hearts are coming to life. You see, the Bible teaches us that there's a deadness. We're born with a deadness in our souls, a deadness to God. And that deadness of soul is much worse than a physical death. There was a day in history that all mankind died, the day that man rebelled against his creator and We became dead men walking when that happened. The Bible, sometimes you'll hear ministers or teachers talk about our sickness, that we're sick in our sin. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say we're dying in our sins. The Bible says we are dead in our sins, spiritually dead. We've mentioned this so many times, but it's crucial to our understanding of salvation. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is speaking to the entire Ephesian church, to the church in Ephesus, just like I'm preaching to you now. Paul, pretend that he's saying this to you right now. This is being said to you. And you, look at it, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, he's talking about their previous lives, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. You were dead. And then he'd go down to verse 4, and we read, But God, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. Mark it down. He raised us from the dead. He made us spiritually alive. 
If you're in Christ, that's already happened to you. When you were dead, when you're dead, you're helpless. There's nothing you can do. When I realized what Paul was saying in Ephesians here, I was a Christian, but my theology changed. There was a point in my life when I thought I was a sinner, but there was enough good in me that I would choose on my own. I would choose Jesus. The Bible says that I was dead, that I was helpless. My soul was lifeless toward God. Jesus, we saw it just a few weeks ago in the sixth chapter of John. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Well, is the Father holding us down, keeping us from Jesus? No, we're dead. And Jesus is saying, unless the Father awakens you, unless you're awakened and raised from your deadness, you can't come. George Whitfield, I cannot speak about this, especially from the 11th chapter of John without thinking of Whitfield. George Whitfield was an 18th century preacher. He was contemporary of John Wesley. And he frequently came to the colonies. He was from England, but he frequently came to the colonies to preach. Ben Franklin, he would stay in Ben Franklin's home when he was in the States. And Franklin would go hear him preach. He was enamored. He loved. He was fascinated by Whitfield. Whitfield was such a great preacher that there was no building big enough to hold the crowds. And so he began preaching. He was a pioneer like Wesley in doing this. He would go out in the fields or in the town square or in the park and preach. Franklin said, Ben Franklin said that when he could be preaching to 25,000 people and out on the outer fringes of the crowd, you could easily hear him preach. I would he, you know, I have a list of men that I want to hear preach, that I would love to hear preach. One of them, one of the top five is Whitfield. I read a sermon that he was preaching on John 11, and I've just got to read this to you. It's just a couple of paragraphs, but you'll understand what I mean. Pretend that I'm Whitfield. Come, ye dead, Christless, unconverted sinners. Come and see the place where they laid the body of the deceased Lazarus. Behold him laid out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, locked up and stinking in a dark cave with a great stone placed on top of it. View him again and again. Go near to him. Do not be afraid. Was he bound hand and foot with grave clothes? So art thou bound hand and foot with thy corruptions. And as a stone was laid on the sepulcher, so is there a stone of unbelief upon thy ignorant soul. Perhaps thou hast laid in this state not only four days, but for many years stinking in God's nostrils. And what still is more affecting, thou art as unable to raise thyself out of this loathsome dead state as Lazarus was to raise himself out of the cave in which he lay so long. Thou mayest try the power of thine own boasted free will and the force and energy of moral persuasion and rational arguments, but all thy efforts exerted with ever so much vigor 
will prove fruitless and abortive until that same Jesus who said, Lazarus, come forth, also bids your own soul to rise from its deadness and come forth into the world to love him. So what did we say at the beginning? He resurrects us. Our first point is that he resurrects us from the spiritual deadness to a life in God, to a new life. John 5, 25, I'll tell you the truth. This is the word of Jesus. I'll tell you the truth. The time is coming and now has come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Those who hear will live. So, he's the resurrection of the life. He resurrects us from spiritual deadness to a life in Christ. Secondly, because he's the resurrection, he resurrects us from physical death to glory the moment we physically die. The moment we physically die, we experience A resurrection. You say, how was that? Well, what did Jesus say to the thief on the cross when the thief on the cross said, remember me when you come into your kingdom? When he expressed his faith, what did Jesus say to him? You know the words. You don't have to look at your Bible. Today, you will, say it with me, today you will be with me in paradise. resurrection of that thief has not even, has not happened yet that will happen when Jesus returns yet when his body was still on the cross dead he was in paradise with the Lord Jesus raised him from that awful cruel death to glory this is certainly the teaching of the New Testament for all of us Jesus made an incredible statement when he claimed to be the resurrection and life while speaking to Martha and her brother. Look at chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and life. And then what does he say immediately after that? Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus said, if our faith is in him, when we die, yet we will live. And living, we shall never die. What did he mean? There's a sense in which we don't die. Our bodies die, but our souls continue to live. And where do our souls live? Look at Corinthians on your scripture sheet or in your Bible. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 8. Yes, this is Paul speaking. Yes, we are good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Paul understood what Jesus was saying to Martha. Martha, when you believe in me, when you put your faith in me, you're not going to die. Though you die, you will live. And you'll never die. To be absent from the body. Do you believe this? I'm asking this morning. Do you? Jesus said to Martha, Martha, do you believe this? 
Well, you hear Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Do you believe that as a Christian? Do you know what it means? That he raises you to glory. He takes your soul to glory the moment you die. Now, with that in mind, let's read Revelation 20, beginning with verse 4, in light of Christ's promises that we'll not die. When we were studying Revelation about a year ago, we were in this passage. And you need to know this. You may be thinking, well, why do I have to go to Revelation? You need to see this. Trust me. When I saw the thrones, when I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. We're seeing there what Jesus promised in John 11 and what Paul taught in his letters. John sees this vision of glory. And who does he see there? He sees these believers in Christ, and they're already home in glory. The thief from the cross. Our fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers who've gone on before us, that's who he sees. Notice, he doesn't see their bodies. He says, I saw their souls, not their resurrected bodies, for the resurrection has not taken place yet. And the reigning with Christ in glory right now during the messianic and church age. That's what the figurative a thousand years means. It's a messianic age from the time of the incarnation and the coming of Christ to the time of his return. He calls it the first resurrection. They've been raised from death or martyrdom immediately to life and glory with Christ. This is for every believer, not just the martyrs. Those who have not been marked by the unbelief of the world. So he's the resurrection. We've got to move on. We're at the end. He's a resurrection in life in that he resurrects us from our spiritual deadness to life in Christ. Also, he resurrects us from a physical death to glory the moment we physically die. And then he says he's the resurrection and he will resurrect our physical bodies on that great day when he returns. Now, this is not on your scripture sheet. It's what we'll see next week in verse 43 in John 11. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came out, and his hands and feet were bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. After his conversation with Martha, he goes to Lazarus' tomb, and he proves his claim. I'm the resurrection. All I have to do is shout and say, come out, and he'll come out. What he did that day with Lazarus is a microcosm of what he will do when he returns. He called one man out then. Then he's going to call out every man, woman, child from all of history. 
You'll command, and they will live in a resurrection. If we believe in him, he's raised us from the deadness of our souls. Somewhere, sometime, we heard his voice. He gave us ears to hear and hearts to receive him. He raised us to a new life, a new way of living, a new way of thinking. Even this morning, we're still discovering the wonders of this new life to which he's raised us. If he does not return first, he'll meet us in the valley of the shadow of death and he'll raise us to glory. Jesus raised the thief on the cross twice. Think about it. On that cross, when he was nailed to the cross, he was not a believer in Jesus. But on that cross, he saw Jesus was the king. He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus raised him from his spiritual deadness of soul, and he loved Jesus. And then, when that thief died on that cross, when his body was dead on that cross, Jesus took him home to glory. He raised him from that cross. He raised his soul from that cross to glory. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And so I want to look at my approaching death like Paul did when Paul said, to live is Christ, but to die is better. To die is gain. I want to be able to say that. I want it to be like what it was in grade school. Do you remember when you were in grade school or maybe junior high school? High school? Do you remember what you did on the last day of school? Did you have homework? No. You had a party. Everybody does. You celebrate it. Even if you had a teacher like Wanda Fee, you still celebrate it. <laughs> you know. What were you celebrating? The years passed in that classroom? No. You were celebrating being free from school. We were celebrating a wonderful summer without school. I want to look at death and know that I'm headed for a glorious, never-ending summer. Do your worst, death. Do your worst. Christ is about to raise me to glory. Do you see what this means to you personally? Some of you, because you're much younger than I am, will probably come to my funeral and say this is bad I don't want to hear about this well let's just say it's a long way down the road okay but because you're younger you might come to my funeral if you don't have anything better to do or you might even stand by my grave if you do that I want you to remember this message and I want you to do me a favor. I want you to say, John, you're in glory now with Christ. But Jesus is not finished yet. You're probably missing your body, John. Well, one day soon, Jesus will give you a new one fit for eternity. And I'll leave this cemetery smiling today. 
Because, John, I will either see you again then or maybe sooner if the Lord tarries a little longer. And I'll see you when Jesus meets me in the valley of the shadow of death and raises me to glory. Amen.